Lord, you just give to creation. That's just who you are. You're just a generous Father. You're a giving God. And I just pray that this week, if we didn't feel it, Lord, I pray that you would help us this next week to look for it. Lord, to look for the gifts that come from our good, good Father. Lord, help us to look into your word today. Lord, help us to look into your word and and walk away different because of it. Lord, we love you a lot, and I just pray that you would bless uh, David as he comes up and shares. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Welcome to week six to the Transform series. I hope that you have all engaged in this process that we're all going through, whether listening to sermons online if you miss a Sunday or, or attending a small group or even just watching the small group videos. Um, I want to remind us all that, that all of the materials and everything for this series um, are a combination of, of Saddleback Ministries, Crossroads Covenant, and North Hills Baptist. So um, there is that. And I want to start off today by telling you a little story. Uh, I think I have a couple slides for this story. The first one, um, Roy. On the faraway island of Salamasand, Yertle the turtle was king of the pond. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. They were, until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king, I'd be ruler of all that I see. So he ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone, and using these turtles, he built up a throne. He made each turtle stand on another one's back, and he piled them all up in a nine-turtle stack. And then Yertle climbed up. He sat down on the pile. What a wonderful view he could see, almost a mile. All mine, Yertle cried. Oh, the things I now rule. You know what happens next after that? King Yertle is quite happy on top of that stack. Then he realizes there's more to be had. 200 more turtles, then I'll be glad. And sitting atop 209, up he looks, and the moon it did shine. More, more turtles, thought Yertle. Then I'll be secure, biting again on the world's best lure. But way down below was a turtle named Mac, who's had all he could take on top of his back. And that plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped. And his burp shook the throne of the king, now Yertle, the king of all Salamasand, fell off his high throne and fell plunk in the pond. The message of this story, I think it's quite plain. If we always want more, we'll never be sane. Who knew Dr. Seuss has such a depth, under, a deep understanding of theology, which we're going to be looking at today. VIP, PhD, MVP, BMOC, we're all one burp away from reality. You know, if, if a burp can destroy King Yertle's secure kingdom, imagine what our world will do to my kingdom of thingdom. Today we're going to look at our financial health, and, and I think next to our physical health, this is one of the, 
the largest topics and things on our minds throughout the course of a day or a week. And if you ask yourself this question, how good do I feel about my financial condition? I think some of you would say, it's terrible. Uh, We're in over our heads and I don't really know how to get out. I worry about it all the time. Some might answer, it's not bad, but it could be better. And I'll bet none of us would say, I've got it made. No worries every day. Smooth sailing. No one can really say that. Why? Because a big burp in our economy, or the economy of another nation, or a war, it can bring our kingdom of thingdom tumbling down. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven or hell? Half of all the parables that Jesus uh, told are about money. And in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses is about handling resources. Why? Why is this the case? Because money, though we need it, can dominate and influence our lives, either good or bad. We spend a lot of energy thinking about it, working for it, earning it, studying it, saving it, investing it, and worrying about it. We're going to look at one of the most intriguing, yet head-scratching stories of Jesus in the entire Bible. It's called the parable of the dishonest or shrewd manager. And if you would turn there with me to Luke chapter 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 to begin with, and then work through some of the other verses as we go through Luke chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, it won't be up on the screen. Grab one of those Bibles out from underneath the chairs, and if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's page 1036. You will find Luke chapter 16 on page 1036 in the Bibles under the chairs. Parable of the dishonest or shrewd manager. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because, of, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, isn't this a strange story? I mean, in the next several verses, Jesus describes the meaning of it a little bit. He says in verse 9, as as we look on, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. What? Am I supposed to buy friends? That's kind of weird. So, Jesus goes on, that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Isn't eternal dwellings then talking about heaven? Whoever 
can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. And then skip down a few verses. You cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, as I've studied that this week, that has got to be the most frustrating, shocking, and misunderstood story that Jesus ever told. And it's important for us to note a couple things as we begin. First of all, Jesus is not praising the guy's dishonesty. Okay, Jesus uses illustrations in his parables all throughout, and he say, he's not saying, be like this guy, do what this guy did. Because the guy is clearly dishonest. I mean, the guy is going to lose his job, and he like, you know, sort of sticks it to his boss is what he does on his way out. And, and that's a completely dishonest thing to do. But, but there are some things that he did right. Jesus is talking to, amongst his disciples, the Pharisees who are within earshot of this conversation. In fact, the self-proclaimed religious watchdogs these Pharisees are, not all of them, but, but Jesus always seemed to butt heads with this particular group of arrogant Pharisees. And to get through their defenses, Jesus would often tell a story, I call it a parabolic pump fake. He sort of begins to tell this story, they get the idea of what they think it's about, so that's like the pump. He catches a midair, and then he like turns it on them. And that's exactly what he he does here. He, He essentially uses people like a Samaritan, the good Samaritan, or a promiscuous woman, or an embezzling CEO, to get his point across. And when the Pharisees get on their high horse and he gets them in the air, then he really shows them what he's talking about. Look, look down at verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They're making fun of Jesus because of this story that he's telling. And he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See, that last phrase is the reason that we're talking about this topic today. Jesus was saying that the things that most people think matter, God says, don't really matter all that much. What do most people in our culture think that matters? Stuff, right? I mean, we got box stores all over the place. Possessions, pleasure, power, prestige, popularity, sex, status, salary, lust, power, money. Big messages out there every day. Those kinds of things. God says those things really aren't the most important things in life. You know, a few years ago, I spent some time alone in a cabin as much as I could physically stand, to be honest with you. And it was hard. But at the end of that, I... uh, the Lord taught me some things, and one of the things that he reaffirmed to me was the truth that the best things in life are not things. They're not things. And we're going to see that today as we hear what God is teaching us. You see, Jesus tells this story because he wants to transform the way that we think about money. He, We're going to look at a new way to think about money today, which goes against every fiber of our culture's message. What we're going to hear today concerning money. But if we hear it, and I believe if we follow it, 
and we're really honest with ourselves that, that, that God's going to transform some areas of our life in the course of the next month, six months, year. Because I think if we were all really honest with ourselves, I think that most of us would admit that, that we've got some problems in this area. Um, it, it, this, our money is a really, really hard place to keep straight. It, it really is. Another reason Jesus tells this story is because people need a lot of help when it comes to managing money. According to Sports Illustrated, 78% of NFL players are either bankrupt or financially stressed within two years of retirement. Think about all the money that they get. 78%. One study showed that half of all lottery winners spent spent all of their winnings within five years. Five years. It's life-changing if that thing happens to a person. An article in U.S. News & World Report this past March said 43% of people in the U.S. wouldn't be able to go more than a month without a paycheck. And almost one in five Americans couldn't miss a single payday without needing to borrow money or sell assets. What that means is that almost half of us have no emergency funds, no savings plan, nothing to fall back on, even for a month. We're living hand to mouth. In fact, most or many people are living beyond their means. Their debt level is not going the right direction. It's going the other direction. Uh, It's by it. It's not... Um, in our culture today, it's not buy it as soon as you get the money, right? It's buy it now before you have the money. And, and I don't need to tell you from experience, but whenever we have done that, the money that we thought was coming for that thing that we bought then goes to something different and we're left with that thing, right? Do I not see some heads shaking? I mean, we've all experienced that, right? Right? Let me ask you this. How much better, how much freer, how much less anxiety would be in your life if I came up to you and I said, you know what, today I'm going to write you a check that's going to wipe out all of your debt. How would that make you feel? Now, don't think very long because I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but, but can you imagine how that would feel? Usually, when we see money on the bulletin of a church, we think the message is going to be about giving to the church, giving to that TV program or whatever it is. We're not talking about that today. Now, that is a good subject, and that needs to be a part of our financial plan. In fact, the small group video this week talks a little bit about that. Again, it would be great for you to watch that, but, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Today's message is about how to think about and how to manage money. And what does the Bible say about this? So there's three quick things, three very quick things that I want to to show you, and you can write these in your notes, um, not to do with your money, okay? Biblical things not to do with your money. Number one, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Luke 16, 2, the manager was accused of what? Wasting his manager's possessions. He was doing a terrible job of keeping track of what was going where. How many of us would admit I've wasted some money in my life? Yeah, all of us, I would hope. Number two, the, the second thing not to do with your money, don't trust it. Don't trust it. The manager learned this pretty quickly in verse three. He says, what am I going to do? I'm losing my job. 
Some of you are in that very position today. And, and if your trust was only in that thing, all would be lost. Whenever we put our ultimate trust in something that can change, it creates insecurity and instability, doesn't it? Total trust. If we trust our job for security, we could lose it. If we put uh, our security in our appearance, how we look, guess what? Today, you're not as good looking as you were 15 years ago. It's true. It's true. And, and for all of us men, we get furniture disease, it seems, where our chest falls down into our drawers. If you put your security in your health, in your marriage, in your kids, those things are temporary. If you put your security in the stock market or your savings account, there's a thousand ways you could lose your money that way. Don't trust it. If you really want to be secure, the center of your life needs to be on something that doesn't change. And that's, that's a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's... that's, that's um, that's seeking first the kingdom of God. Every day, no matter what you're doing, no matter, matter what you're thinking about, no matter what kind of experience you're in, you see, you can try to put your trust in other things, but they will always, always fail. Your spouse, your kids, your money, your job, your closest friend, your parents. Proverbs 23, 5 says, Your money can be gone in a flash as if it had grown wings and flown away like an eagle. Money can just fly away like an eagle. Look, I want you to look at this picture of this dollar bill. Oh no, it's the wrong side. That's the one I gave you? Oh, it's a great picture of George Washington, but it's the wrong side. All right, so um, envision with me the other side of that dollar bill. What is one major thing on the back side of that dollar bill? In God we trust. Yes, our money says it. When we pull it out, it reminds us that it's not in this dollar bill or this $5 bill or this $20 bill that I trust. It's in God that I trust. And also on the back of the $1 bill is an eagle because our government wanted to remind us that it can fly away like an eagle. Right? Now, the third thing not to do with your money is don't expect it to satisfy Uh, Dave Ramsey says that money can buy you fun, which is true, but if you think having more will make you happy, make you more secure, make you feel more important, make you more valuable, you are fiercely misguided Uh, because it's not going to satisfy. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. I had a conversation with somebody a, a, a month ago, and we were talking about money. And I said, yeah, you need to remember that, that, that money is the root of all evil, not evil. Okay, we've got to remember that. Just having money, that's not an evil thing. It's loving that. It's trusting in that. That's where the switch takes place. Gallup did a poll of people to see how people thought about being rich. Every single person they interviewed defined rich as the one who made double of what they made. The people who made 50K per year defined rich as those who made 100,000. Even the people who made 5 million thought that in order to be rich, you needed 10. Being wealthy is a moving target, no matter how much you have. 
It just seems like it's really, really moving for me. Doesn't it seem that way for you? I can never hit that target. I just, just get, get even on something, and it's like something else happens. It's like, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Ah, I get it. Yeah, the trust is in you, not this. So those are three things not to do with your money. Now, I want us to see three truths in this parable about managing our money well. In fact, as I said earlier, they're the exact opposite of almost everything that we've been taught or that the culture wants to teach us. But if we act on these things, our financial health will improve. Number one, the first thing is we are managers of money that is not ours. I mean, the man in the story is called a what? Manager or a steward of this master's stuff. It's not his. He is only caring for it. And according to the parable, he's doing a terrible job of it. So what Jesus is saying is, whoever you are, if you understand that there is a God, you will know that the money you have is not really yours. So stop acting like it. Now, I think especially Americans really believe that if I have money, I made that money. It was my intelligence, my work, my education. It's my money. I say those very words. It's my house. It's my car. It's my money. And, and, and it really is a shift of thinking. Jesus is saying in this parable, and in fact the whole Bible actually says this, no, it's not. You, all that you have has been given to you by God. Now, think this through with me. If, um, if there is a God, and you say, I worked for this, what did you work for this with? What did you use um, what helps, um, let's see, first of all, you're alive, right? Kind of hard to make money if you're dead. You can't do it. So which helps a lot in making money is to be alive. And it's very, um, so you're healthy. Well, a lot of us are. There are some in the room that aren't healthy. You may not be feeling well. You may not be able to work. Maybe you, uh, you had back surgery recently and you're not able to go to work. But the fact is, when people get really upset when they get sick because they can't work, right? What do they say? What do we often think? Man, God, why don't you take care of this sickness so I can go back to work? Right? Right? So, right there in those very words, in those very thoughts, is an admission that your health comes from God. That, that God is providing for you the ability to go work. It's the back door of saying my life and my health come from God. You say, I work very hard for what I have. Okay. But if you had been born in a tent in the Sahara in the 10th century, you would have worked really hard then too and probably wouldn't be where you are today. You say, I've developed my talent and skills. Where did you get those? God-given. You say, I take advantage of my opportunities. No, you take advantage of the opportunities that God gives you. Do you see where I'm getting at here? We take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us with the talent that God has given us, with the health, with the life that God has given us. It's not ours, it's his. That's the reason King David, who was one of the hardest working and wealthiest men in the Bible, said this in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 12 and 14. He says, wealth and honor come from you. He's talking to God. 
Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. You know, when we say on a Sunday morning, when we take up the offering and we say to give back a little bit of what he's given us, totally mean it. It's the truth. He's given us that in the first place. And we've got to start looking at everything in our life this way. That we don't really own anything. And you know what, honestly, and we'll probably talk about this, well, not next week, but um, that goes with our children as well. You know, our children are gifts from God too. They're not ours. It all belongs to God. It's just loaned to us for a while. And here's two things that'll happen if we're able to, to have this attitude. The first thing is our gratitude will go up. Our gratitude will go up. If you go out after church today and you get in your car and you think, Lord, wow, this is, you know, my car's running today. Maybe some of us, that's all we could say. Lord, thank you for this way that I could drive to church. And, and when you get home, maybe your thought is, Lord, you know what? I know I've complained about this in the past, but thank you for the, the roof and four walls that, that we have over our head. I know it's not mine, it's yours. Thank you, God, for letting me manage this house for you. When you get in bed tonight, say, this, this is God's bed and I get to sleep in it. <laughs> you get a paycheck. You get a paycheck. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this. Your, your, your gratitude will go up. The second thing is that your worry will go down because, because here's the thing, if that's God's car and somebody backs into it, Right? That's one of the reasons we never buy new things because I'm never the person to put the first scratch in it. There's always one there already. I don't have to worry about it. And I don't. Now, do I take care of it? Absolutely, yes. Change the oil? Yes. Put the right kind of fuel in it? Yes. Lord, what do you want us to do? Somebody backed into our car. Should we fix it? Should we get rid of it? It's yours. Help me to manage it. Your kid needs braces, right? Hey, God, your kid needs braces. Lord, how are we going to pay for these braces? Here's the point. If I'm in charge and if I'm, in ma- I'm the master of my fate, all of that pressure is on me. I've got to pay for it all. I've got to come up with it. But if I'm really a child of God and he's loaned me these things, then I'm just managing them. I need to do a good job of that. But it's really his, and I think it really raises our sense of gratitude and it lowers our sense of worry, even if it gets dented or it goes away. It all comes from him. It all belongs to him. The second truth is this. Money is an indicator of what's most important to me. This one, when we went through Financial Peace University, was like a kick in the stomach, to be honest with you. And, and here's how. Here's some ways that, that money is an indicator. The first one is money shows what I love the most. Money shows what I love the most. How I spend, how you spend your money reveals to God and everybody else what is important in your life. If you let your children or someone else look through your bank account and they look down the list and they see where your money is going, they will know what's important to you. If you really want to know what you love most, look at your calendar as well. And your bank statement. Because we make daily investments and we're putting our treasure to work. Now, if I showed you my bank statement and, and you found these things in there, $600, Toys R Us, 
$215 Minnesota Zoo, $1,700 Disneyland, $350 Children Museum, what would you conclude? That I love my grandson a lot, right? <laughs> right? That, that, that's a priority in my life. If you showed me your bank statement, I think I could tell you what you loved most. Now, that's hard to hear, but it's true. It, it is true. And I think it would be good for us to all review our uh, bank statements. And, you know, people say, put your money where your mouth is. No, we put our money where our heart is. Some of us, that just might be our mouth, right? McDonald's, Burger King, Liras, Liras, Liras. Um. The second thing that how money is an indicator is money shows what I trust the most. Money shows what I trust the most. It shows what I have my faith in. Am I trusting in my money for security? Is that where I get my sense of peace in a day, or am I trusting God for my security? I'm not saying, and the Bible does not say, don't save, don't invest. It's saying, don't trust in those things. Am I trusting in money to make me feel good about me, or am I trusting God to help me feel good about me? I think this is still probably true of myself, but I tend to be a sad spender. Sort of use it as a pick-me-up. It, to get something new and, and kind of expensive makes me feel good, and I have to be cautious. My wife is a lot like that, too. And when you have two babies in the family that are used to getting what they want, some of our money conversations really aren't that good. Right? It, we don't have to work hard to convince the other person that we should get this thing. So discipline is, is hard for us. How many of you actually own some stock in the stock market? And, and how do you know if you're trusting in the stock market for your security? Here's how you can tell. When the stock market goes down 300 points, how do you feel? When it goes down another 300, and another 300, and another 300, and another 300, the stomach starts to gurgle, right? And you get this pit in there, and you think, you got to think, okay, Lord, this is just something I've been managing. It's all yours anyway. I'm going to trust you. Oh, I can't, I, 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 I couldn't, that's hard to do, I know. But it's an indicator of where we put our trust. Listen to this. After the economic crisis in 2008, the CFO of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement and the CEO of Sheldon Good shot himself behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. If your trust is in money, that's what happens. You think all is lost. You get depressed and at the worst, despair over that thing. So let's all check our checkbooks. What are we using our money for? Here's another, one more indicator. Money shows if, shows if God can trust me. Money shows if God can trust me. This is the reverse. It doesn't just show if I trust God. It shows if God can trust me. I'm out of control. Finances reveal an out-of-control life. Unmanaged finances are a symptom of an unmanaged life. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12 right there. Three of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. 
If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Here's what being trusted with a little money looks like. Have a financial plan. This guy was getting fired because he was a terrible um, manager. He had no plan. Keep accurate records. Some of those people did. I guarantee you when they marked that down from 1,000 to 800 or 600, they wrote it down and they kept track of it. We need to keep good records. Pay down our debt. This, this shrewd manager, as he's referred to, actually helps people do this in the parable, but we need to pay those things down, not, not enable them, not, not just feed them, which is what we often do. We need to come up with a plan to get our debt in control. Invest for the future. This guy made a a financial investment in his future by, according to the parable, essentially buying friends so that when he lost his job, there would be some people who could come alongside of him and support him. Now, we know that's not the way that friendship works, and we looked at that last week. Be generous with what we have. This guy was very generous with what he controlled. Invest for the future. If... If we can do these things with a little money, guess what? God says we will be entrusted with more. And and what Jesus says here is really mind-blowing. What he's saying is that if we manage our money well, which is a temporary thing, he will give us true wealth in the future. You know, this life that he's given us, the time that he gives us. when When we manage all of those things well, He gives us more. I mean, the only thing that is going to outlast this world or anything that we have is what? Eternity, us, our friends, our relationship with God. Michael Wilcock, who wrote a commentary on Luke, puts it this way. He says this, Here's the point of this parable. Although these things, your property, ability, time, belong to this life only, says Jesus, yet what will happen to you then when you pass into that life, heaven, our eternal existence, will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Interesting. Make sure that your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Interesting to think about. And I, I want to pinpoint that and focus that to our relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know if we're going to hang out with our friends from here in heaven. I, I, ultimately, I don't know what that's going to look like. But I do know for fact that our Savior will be there. And as we are investing in that relationship here, it is one that will return. You know, how we manage our money is directly connected to the kinds of relationships that we'll have with God and people for all eternity. That seems to be what this parable is communicating. Now, we've all seen how the mismanagement of money can wreck relationships, right? You have friends that have mismanaged money. Mismanaged money is the number one cause of divorce. When I talk with couples and when we go through pre-marriage counseling, money is one of those things. It just causes problems sometimes. Um, I've seen family relationships disintegrate. I mean, completely. To, to a point where they don't even talk to each other anymore. When, when a matriarch or a patriarch of the family dies and leaves a will, and they've got to sort it all out. Even 
as even something as simple as loaning a friend some money can sometimes cause problems. But Jesus says that we can manage our money well. And he says it can lead to long-term relationships. Look at number three, real quick. Use money to make friends who will last forever. I mean, here's the thing, right? Um, We have jobs, we work, we make money, and we have a decision to make. What am I going to do with that money? Where am I going to spend that money? Am I going to spend it all on myself and my family? Or, or um, since it's not mine in the first place, am I going to spread the wealth a little bit? Am I going to be generous in, in helping others and my neighbors and my friends? And, and when we do that, we, we become generous as Jesus is generous to us. I mean, as a Christ follower who's been adopted into his family, that that upon salvation, we are given the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, even to transform the way that we think about our money. And my prayer for us as we leave here today is that whatever, whatever in this sermon made the hair come up on the back of your neck, that you will surrender that thing to God that you will allow him to transform you and how you manage and think about money. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says this, the word of God lasts forever. And, and when we bring the word of God into the connection with people and we use our generosity as a process of doing that, uh, amazing things happen. Friendships happen. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul asks his Christian friends to give money to the Macedonians who are experiencing a terrible famine. And he says it this way, I don't want you to give your money away because I'm ordering you. I want you to do it out of love. And then he tells them how to have their love make them generous. He says, think about Jesus Christ, who though he was rich became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. You know, if there's anything, whenever I talk to people about this church family, it's a generous one. Over and over and over and over again, I've seen you people give time, money, sacrifice just stuff and things for each other and for others outside our doors. You know, in that sense, let's keep up the good work. Let's, let, and, and I pray that, that, that as we hear the message today, that it will only further transform our minds to the place where every day the thought goes through our head that it's not mine. Thank you, God, for your generosity to me and the things that we have, the relationships that I have, the friends that I have, and help me, help my family be a beacon of light and hope in my neighborhood, at my job, at my work for Christ Jesus, even through how we think about our money. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Father, I pray that, 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 that you would just continue to transform us as, as you are transforming me, Lord. I, I hope and pray that I'm not the only one that's learning through this series. And I pray that as a, as a church and as a congregation, we would just continue to, to grow deeper in our relationship with you and with one another and with our neighbors. And Lord, that, that we would just seek to to outgive and outlive each other. Father, thank you for, for men in our culture like Dave Ramsey and others who, 
who teach about money and, and, and biblical truths concerning that. And I, I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who, who's just struggling to manage and, and they're just at the end of their rope, I pray, Father, that, that you would give them the strength and the ability to call on somebody else, a friend, a, a, a class, a, a, or another relationship to help them. Oh, Lord, thank you for all who are here today and from what we've learned. And as we close, Lord, we worship you as we, as we do, as we sacrifice, as we give, as we tithe, as we, we give offerings. Out of gratitude, out of worship to you. Use it, Father, to glorify yourself and to expand the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you please stand with me?